before I forget. There we go. So uh, I want to start just by reminding us how the, the gospel starts here of um, Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. So, you know, these are some key verses that we just keep emphasizing, right? And so Romans 1, 16 through 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so just a reminder, this is kind of the framework that starts this letter to the Romans as Paul writes it. Uh, not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, you'll see in 16 and 17, belief, faith, um, the power of God to save uh, by faith in Christ and Christ alone. So we're going to talk about that in Romans 9, 10, and 11 for the next several weeks. I just want that on the, the forefront of our mind. Uh, I'll tell, I'll kind of connect that a little bit more here in a minute as we launch in. But Sean, would you be willing to pray for us? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, good morning, Father. We, um, and we come before you uh, boldly and, and humbly and uh, ask your blessing on this time. Lord, we, we, um, man, sometimes it's still amazing when you think about how the God of the universe cares enough for us to, to clear a way to make us justified, to make us righteous mm -hmm. in standing before him uh, to such a, um, the scripture would say, a stiff-necked people. <laughs> we, um, scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we trust that, we lean on that. And ask that as we read through this today, as we chew through your word, that you do increase our faith so that we can bring glory to you. In the name of Christ, amen. 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 Thank you, Sean. Uh, if we could, I want to kind of start with the end in mind with Romans 9, 10, and 11. These three chapters are kind of all tied together um, as Paul kind of finishes laying out this really deep, kind of strong foundation of theology before Chapter 12, he'll start getting into really practical living of, okay, here's here's the gospel um, in all of its weightiness and theological depth. Now, here's how you live it out, uh, Romans 12 through 16. But 9 through 11 here, um, we're going to see him uh, still lay out some more strong theology. But I, what I want to do is start um, in Romans 11, the very end of the chapter. So if somebody could... Uh, turn to Romans 11 and read verses 33 through 36 for us. So Romans 11, 33 through 36. Whoever's got that, uh, read that out for us. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be paid to him. For him, and through him, and to him are all things, to, him, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Right. Thank you, Ron. So I want to start with this because this is where Paul uh, gets to and wraps up before he gets into chapter 12, kind of practical living out this gospel the reason I want to start with that is, is as we've kind of led into for several weeks now, Romans 9, 10, 11 is going to have some big, tough questions for us. Questions that are really going to push on our understanding of who God is and what he's like. And I think oftentimes in Romans 9, 10, 11, I think the common question that's going to come to uh, the mind of the reader is, is God fair? Is he just? Why would God do that? Um, these are going to be tough questions, I think, for us over the next several weeks. Um, but my goal, Sean's goal, our goal together as a, as a group is I want to end up where Paul is. Um, I want to end up here at the end of Romans 11 saying, uh, I still don't fully get how God operates. And I'll spend the rest of eternity attempting to learn and be in awe of who God is and how his mind works. 
But in the meantime, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. The end of the day, when we're done with Romans 9, 10, 11, we may still, and I'm sure we will still have some unanswered questions, but it ought to lead us to worship. It ought to lead us to awe. And uh, that's my goal is, hey, we're going to do our best. We're going to work through this. And uh, I am praying it expands our view of the holiness of God, the majesty, the power, the sovereignty, the, the providence of God, the mercy of God. But at the end of the day, we say, God, you are incredible. You are infinite. And my little finite mind is just trying to grasp how incredible, unsearchable, um, and inscrutable your ways are. So that's that's where we're going. That's that's the goal. So let's go ahead and flip back on over to Romans 9. Romans 9. Let's read the whole thing together, and then we'll start working through verse by verse. Sean, anything you would want to throw in there before we read uh, Romans 9 all the way through? No, I, okay. think, uh, I think as we read through it, it's going to Bring its own questions for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so if somebody would jump in, take Romans 9, verse 1, take a few verses, and then we'll share it around until we uh, read the whole chapter together. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ from the, for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the givings of the law, the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall? God bless forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not, uh, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of electing might, be, con might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Go ahead. You will say to, say to them, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to repay, you reply against God? Will the thing formed to say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have potter over the clay? Does the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, only but also of the Gentiles. 
as he says to Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved. And I, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left, had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, excuse me, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. All right. Thank you, my friends. Well, just a reminder, I think a helpful, not perfect, but a helpful example for kind of all of Romans that we started with is to think of the Jewish people as the the biological children of God, if you will. Um, And then... uh, what you see is the Gentiles, so Greeks or um, those who are non-Jewish being brought into the family of God, uh, adopted in. And so you've got kind of now this this blended family, if you will, all over the Roman Empire of the, the Jewish people who have been chosen by God. Hey, son, could you go talk with Mama, please? Thank you, son. Um, the, the Jewish people who have been chosen by God um, and have walked with him for hundreds of years. And now things have been opened up through the work of Christ uh, to bring all the nations back into relationship with God, into the family of God. And so now you've got these, these biological children, the, the Jews, and these adopted children, the Gentiles, trying to figure out how to be in the same family and um, how to wrestle through tradition how to wrestle through um, kind of culture and society, what that looks like to be under the same roof. And Paul's heart here is is that they would be unified by the Spirit and show the nations uh, that through the reconciling work of Jesus, humanity has been reconciled to God, but also to each other. And so um, the family of God has been opened up for the nations to come and be under the roof of God, but there's all kinds of tension. There's all kinds of jealousy and envy and uh, strife that comes from that. And uh, now going into Romans 9, 10, and 11, kind of a transitional question to be thinking about from Romans 8 to 9 is, you know, to wrap up 8, we just spent a lot of time talking about God's elect. Um, those that he's foreknown, he's predestined. And those he's predestined, he's also called. And those he's called, he's justified. And those he's justified, he's glorified. So Paul has just kind of laid out, when God starts something, he will finish it. He will see it to completion. And so a question Paul is beginning to ask, he's assuming that his readers are asking is, um, well, has God pushed aside the Jews? Because a lot of Jews aren't believing in Jesus. So a lot of Jews aren't under the roof uh, of God now. They're kind of pursuing their own way and old laws and traditions. They're not being reconciled to God through the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. So has God set aside his biological children and just welcomed in the, the adopted children? There's this tension that they're feeling because more Gentiles at this point, non-Jews are coming to believe in Jesus than Jews are. And so there's questions about that. Has God passed over his biological children, the Jews, 
and now moved forward and is just focusing on the Gentiles now. So these are some of the questions that are being asked. Uh, before we take kind of with that in mind, move into verse one. Any questions or thoughts on that you guys have? I have a, I have a question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, um, let me let me share because I'm I'm uh, we've had adoption in, my, in our family. My sister was adopted, and I know that feeling of somebody coming in and taking over the attention. Yeah. of what was once yours. And there mm-hmm. is some some uh, displacement, some jealousy, uh, because you before would have had, uh, before what I had is I had one-third of the attention of my, my parents, mm-hmm. and now I've gone down to a quarter. Mm-hmm. And not only a quarter, but it was a female opposed mm-hmm. to a, you know, it was just male. And there is a real uh, battle of starting your pecking order again. You're reestablishing your pecking order. And it's a, it's a real feeling, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. So, um, second thing I wanted to find out, in the first verse, it says, I tell you the truth, I am not lying. Was Paul perceived to the people as not being a person of truth and character, that he had to reemphasize it twice? Yeah, great. I think that's a good segue into verse into verse 1 here. So let me read that for us, and we'll we'll move into those verses. So... Paul says, um, chapter 9, verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in, uh, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. What Paul's doing here, Ron, uh, is he's setting up uh, for what he's about to say in verse 2 and 3. Uh, because what he's about to say in verse 2 and 3 is going to sound like hyperbole. It's going to sound like exaggeration. Um but he wants you to know before you read verse two and three, what I'm about to say is is truth. I'm not I'm not uh, exaggerating here. So could somebody read verse two and three in, in light of that? I have great sorrow and, and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. All right. Thanks, John. So, Ron, as you look at that, maybe, and think of verse 1 as setting up what he's about to say in verse 2 and 3, why do you think he would stress, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth here? In light I think of what he he's, says. he's putting the blanket out for all people, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but all people. He's gone down from the, the uh, even to his own countrymen, to the the, the whole the whole thing and then he's also talking for the uh, he's also talking to Israelites um, that talk about the adoption issue I think it's just he's just wanting to make it completely inclusive and to it's not coming from him it's coming from God do you see anything in verse two and three that would make you say oh like um, that sounds pretty Pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pretty out there, Paul. Uh, pretty extreme. That's the word. I, that sounds pretty extreme, Paul. Oh, I, yeah, I think I wish I could myself were accursed from Christ. I'm not even sure what the word accursed means. So I think that's a, a key word there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's let's open it up to the group here. What do you think? What is Paul saying in verse two and three? First of all, go ahead, Paul is, I'm sorry, no, whoever was going to speak. Um, I think Paul is attributing, uh, as he's going to go over here very soon in, in the fourth, six, essentially, fourth through six, essentially, that that while all of the, that, that the, the, the nation of Israel were God's people, that unfortunately, as Christ stands before them, they're missing the boat. They're not seeing mm-hmm. that Christ is the Messiah. And Paul's saying that I wish that I can take their place and they, in fact, could have the faith that I have and therefore be saved. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they're, they're believing in the flesh. They're, they're, they're believing in the law and not, not in, in the mm-hmm. Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, so the first, I that up really nicely. Thank you, Sean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the accursed, I, I think, would mean... Um, um, subject to the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. I think this is this is Paul. His heart 
hurting and grieving so much over his his people, his family that don't believe in Jesus and the thought of them spending eternity separated from God, experiencing the, the wrath of God for all of eternity um, because they missed Jesus. They thought that they could earn their way to God through law and tradition and the family they're born into, which we're about to, to get to. And they rejected Jesus, therefore rejected being reconciled to God. Um, that thought grieves Paul so deeply. He says, I, to Sean's point, I wish I could take their place. Um, I wish I could take their place. So that's how he starts this whole chapter. Does that, is that bring some clarity, Ron? Yeah, it yeah. does. One, one yeah. thing I struggled with before where it talked about the Jewish people being God's chosen people aren't. Aren't we all chosen? I mean, is, he, is he showing favoritism to the Jews opposed to the, the Gentiles? I mean, is there does he love them more, like them better? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question I think we're going to keep coming up against in 9, 10, and 11, right? Even It's one of the reasons I wanted to start our time this morning in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. The, the power of the, the gospel to save first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Um, and uh, this this is God's, we're going to see this uh, here. He's going to use in a few verses, as we read, the example um, of Isaac and Ishmael and then Jacob and Esau. And God, all throughout Scripture, chooses um, certain people over others. And this is, th- this is the question I think we're going to have a hard time working through, but it's good for us, is, okay, why would God choose Isaac but not Ishmael? Why would God choose uh, Jacob, the younger brother, over the older brother Esau? Um, why would God choose the, specifically the Jewish people, uh, starting with Abraham in Genesis 12? What about all the other nations? Right. Um, so, Ron, I, I don't have a, a clear answer for you yet as much as let's keep working through Romans 9, 10, 11, see where we get. Unless somebody else wants to jump in and answer it clearly. <laughs> but I, I think you're hitting at the heartbeat of, of the wrestle here. Mm-hmm. OK, cool. Um, I just want to maybe just pause before we move into verse four and five. Uh, these first couple I think what struck me was just the heart of, of care, compassion uh, Paul has for his family. It reminded me of in, in Matthew 9, there's a scene where it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw his own people, Uh, When he overlooked Jerusalem and he saw a bunch of people running around trying to keep the law and and being oppressed by the the political empire of Rome and then also um, being really oppressed by their own religious leaders and teachers, Um, people harassed by the religious system that should have been shepherding them instead was demanding more of them and um, was not making it. He was not doing their work to bring them to God. Um, instead, they were they were using the people uh, for their own benefit. And this just breaks the heart of Jesus. And uh, it, it talks about how he weeps over Jerusalem uh, because he sees that his people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And um, I was just thinking about the heart of Paul here. And how he says, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. This is the idea of relentless grief and heartache. Um, He can't get his family off of his mind and his heart. Throughout the day, he's just thinking about um, how badly he wants them to know Jesus. Um, Because without Jesus, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Um, And I I just want to start and just be honest, I'm not there uh, I was trying to think about when I feel this sense of grief and heartache for people in my life that don't yet know Jesus. And if I were to put my own heart up next to Paul's, which is never a good idea, <laughs> comparison will crush us all, won't it? 
Um, but if I were to just be really honest and put my heart up next to Paul's, I'm, I'm pretty cold hearted. I can go through most every day without really having a burden for those who don't know Jesus. And um, I, I realized, you know what? The Holy Spirit has a lot of work to do in my own mind and heart to bring this kind of like holy grief, this holy heartache for the lost, to think of the people in my life um, that don't yet know Jesus and who will be separated from God for all of eternity if they don't come to receive and believe in Jesus by faith and faith alone. And so rather than choosing guilt, um, and just saying, well, you got to love people more and care about them more. I think I'm starting, so I just look at these few verses. I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to give me the heart of Paul, to give me the heart of Jesus, who would look over Jerusalem and say, oh, these people are lost. They're like sheep without a shepherd. It grieves me to think that they would spend all of eternity separated from the love of God. I just want to start by asking the Holy Spirit to give me that kind of heart when I see people um, versus just moving throughout the day. And some people believe in Jesus and some don't. Um, I can tend to be pretty, pretty um, callous. I think callous is the word. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to change that about me. And so just as a, a way of, of practical application, as I look at these few verses um, uh, today, I, I just want to jot down a few names that God puts on my heart to begin praying for daily, um, that I would begin to grieve over their um, sin and their lostness the way that Paul does and the way that Jesus does. So any thoughts you guys have on that as you look at these verses, and then we'll, we'll move into four and five. One thought is um, certainly... Um, To pray that, and I'm not arguing at all against it, uh, just the reality of the anguish that he has unceasing anguish over these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was in what, 27, he talks about a remnant. So he's looking at a picture of uh, millions of his brothers in the past and so forth, not knowing the Messiah or, or believing mm-hmm. in him. But that, uh, the prayer for that is. Uh, if it's granted, is an extremely heavy weight that is crushing mentally and emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so I think the prayer for that should be enlarge my heart and my strength mm-hmm. to bear this because it, uh, anguish is, is, is difficult, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you don't see your prayers answered and that people will turn away. Mm-hmm. And anguish over their um, their fate. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, that's what kind of scares me about this. You know, I feel the same way that you, Dave. I want to have a heart for the loss. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of afraid to take on the anguish that goes with it mm-hmm. and how to deal with it. And so, um, you know, I don't know how Paul carried that. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really Sean. You were going to say something. Uh, no, I was just kind of thinking. Um, I think as a as a pastor, Dave, there's an expectation for you to have that heart for the lost. Yeah. But 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 I think that the the thing here, and I think you were saying it earlier, just kind of reinforcing it, is that you know Paul was tasked with spreading the gospel to the Gentiles, mm-hmm. and and. Um, I think we're tasked with the same thing. And so the question is, when was the last time, not just you as a pastor, but the rest of us as well, the rest of the church had the same heart that Paul has because we're tasked with spreading the gospel just like he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's. The, I, I'm hoping even our journey through First Peter as a church, that that's where we all grow together to recognize, whoa, like what an incredible calling to be called royal priests. It's this idea that now we carry on the work of Jesus. Everybody's a pastor. <laughs> Everybody has this role of the Holy Spirit within you, um, interceding and, and mediating for people so that the Holy Spirit might open their eyes to see Jesus. So all of us ought to carry the burden of the priest who says, man, I, I care about the sins of the people and I want them to be right before God. 
Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, and to John's point, I, I think that's in many ways what has kept me from compassion is knowing that um, compassion literally means to suffer with, right? That's what compassion means is, is to be willing to, to feel um, what those around you feel by entering into their lives. And that is a, that's a burden that you see come through Paul's heart here. So um, John, I, I think that's a great prayer of, of application to add on to there is, is Holy Spirit, give me what I can handle and enlarge, enlarge my heart, enlarge my capacity to, to care so much that uh, I would feel this anguish for my brothers and sisters, but know that it's, it's a heavy burden. You can, you can sense it in Paul in his writing that his life was, he carried this burden wanting to see his brothers and sisters come to know Jesus. Um, a healthy boundary, though. You know, there is there a boundary? I mean, people really crippled down with caring all this and, and being so heavily burdened down for these people that you just be consumed by it and lose your effectiveness of ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know, Ron. Um, I'll just say this and leave it with the class. I'm not sure either. I remember years back I went to a, a pastor's conference and they were talking about boundaries. <laughs> I'll never forget this. This There was this hour-long session about how um, a pastor needs boundaries or just let's just say Christian as a whole. A Christian needs boundaries and, and healthy boundaries in order to not like let people too far into your life and all this stuff. It was about a, an hour's worth of kind of talk on what healthy boundaries look like. And then the next session, uh, somebody else got up and said, um, so what kind of boundaries did Jesus have as they were driving the nails through his wrist bones? And uh, <laughs> and, I, and we were all just sitting there like, I don't know. <laughs> you know so um, I, I think that's maybe the wrestle here is, yeah, healthy boundaries, but... I, we got to be wise, uh, but also, man, Jesus, in Paul's language, he'll say it later on, Jesus opened his heart to us. Uh, there is nothing Jesus held back of himself uh, from us so that we might come to the Father. And so I'm not sure. Uh, I'm just going to leave that there, and, and I think we, we can think through that in our own time. But I'm not sure what boundaries or no boundaries looks like when it comes to um, getting to, to be about what Jesus is about. Um, still trying to figure that one out. So if you guys have wisdom on that one, I would love your help. <laughs> I really need help with that. Uh, verse four and five. Would somebody read four and five? They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Amen. So as um, as Paul's just kind of laying out, once again, going back to chapter 1, power of the gospel to save first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, he wants to remind his readers here, hey, look at all the rich history and legacy of God's heart towards the people of Israel. So don't forget this. So he actually lists eight kind of great privileges uh, that the people of God have shared and enjoyed uh, by God's choosing them from the time of Abraham. So first of all, adoption, and then the glory, the covenants, giving of the law, worship, promises, patriarchs. And then the last thing he mentions there is is the bloodline or the race um, through which the, the Messiah, the Christ, uh, the anointing wood would come, as we saw that promise all the way back in Genesis three fifteen that through Eve would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, um, and in crushing his head would also take a, a fatal blow uh, to his heel, and uh, and then later on, God picks up on that promise with Abraham and talks about how the Messiah, the seed, that seed, that promised seed would come through him. So. Paul wants us to remember, don't forget all these great promises and rich history and and tradition with the people of God. So don't glaze over that. Um, God has been at work with with, uh, his people for 
uh, all of history. So uh, somebody take verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9. And it, it is even though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be made. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. All right. Thank you, Connie. Um, Matt, I know you've been trying to read. You get, uh, keep getting shot. I'll give you. I'll give you something to read here in a minute. All right. Um, what do you guys see? Um, that's the beauty of Zoom is we're always like cutting each other off. It happens. Um, what do you guys see in six through nine here? Where where what's he beginning to develop? So if you notice, he's like I mentioned earlier, you're going to see here in this section, he's going to contrast uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, mm -hmm. Before then, in the next couple of verses, he'll he'll contrast uh, Jacob and Esau. Um, he wants us to be thinking about if you're familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah. God had promised, though they were unable to have children, God had promised to to Abraham and Sarah that they would become a great nation. And so they're like, well, we're pretty old in age. We haven't been able to have any kids so far. And yet you're saying that we're going to be the great, you know, the grandparents of a great nation. How's this going to work, God? And they wait year after year, believing in God. Okay. God said that we would have a child and from that child would come a great nation. Um, and they wait and they wait. And I, I'm trying to remember if it's 15 or if it's it's 25 years, but it's it's a long span. And they they begin to lose some some faith, some hope. And Sarah says, "Hey, well, let's. Um, I got an idea. Let's let's use my female servant Hagar. Um, and maybe that's what God wants us to do. Is is we'll have a, a kid through her, and then that'll start our nation. And and so they attempt to help God, <laughs> which is never a great idea." Is hey God's a little bit slow in His promise, so we'll we'll nudge God along and we'll you know we'll make this work. Um, and so what Paul wants us to begin thinking about is the the physical kind of human strategy and attempt uh, with Hagar leads to Ishmael, uh, but then. We see later that waiting and trusting in the timing and the promise of God produces the, the spiritual miracle of Isaac. And so he's going to begin to use the language children of flesh or children of promise. So the children of flesh, Ishmael, um, and then the children of the promise, which is Isaac, when God was good on his word. Um, when he delivered Isaac through Abraham and Sarah. So um, what Paul wants us to begin thinking about it and you, by using this example is did God's word fail uh, in his promise to Abraham and Sarah because they had to produce their own way about going about this? He says, no, um, Abraham and Sarah were impatient and they jumped the gun. God was good on his word and produced Isaac through them. And another thing he's beginning to develop there in light of that is that not everybody who was born from Abraham was a part of the family of God. So he's beginning to, to kind of plant that thought in your mind and heart, and then he'll use the next example to kind of bring that home. So um, any questions, thoughts on that section before uh, we move to the next one? Just real quick on uh, this is kind of just a side note of application, but uh, I had a a mentor. Some of you know Rick Taylor, and he would always say to us, "There's two ways of pursuing success. The first is to start your own thing and ask God to bless it, uh, or the second one is to see what God is doing and join Him in it." And so that's the human tendency is I'm going to do something, and then God, would you bless this? Uh, and that's what you kind of see Abraham and Sarah do is like, well, 
I don't see God doing anything, so we're just going to do this, and then God, you know, you'll make this work. Versus, okay, God, what are you doing? We'll wait on your promise. We'll be patient and be still, and we'll join you in your work versus creating our own work and asking you to throw your blessing on what we want to do. Um, all right, Matt, your turn. Are you ready? Uh, you get the fun section <laughs> uh, that Sean's going to teach for us. Will you take 10 through 13? 10 through 13. Yeah. And not only that, but there was also Rebecca. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. All right. Thanks, Matt. Um, let's go Let's go to two passages for some backstory here, and then um, I imagine we'll spend the rest of our time working through these verses. Um, so would somebody turn to Genesis 25? Let's just read the story of when Rebecca was pregnant, um, God's conversation uh, with, with her and Isaac. And then somebody else turned to Malachi. So somebody to Genesis 25, 19 through 28. That'll be a little bit of a reading chunk. So Genesis 25, 19 through 28. And then somebody hey, else. Hey, real quick. Yeah, yeah. I might have to sign off. So okay. Um, see you guys next week. We really needed you for verse thirteen, John. <laughs> no, yeah. it's all good. <laughs> we'll solve it without you. It's pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> all right, John. Have a good morning. All right. Um. So Genesis twenty-five nineteen through twenty-eight. Somebody got that. I can grab that. All right, thanks. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean. Uh, I, sh I shouldn't have done that. I hate, <laughs> I hate the... Should have looked ahead before you volunteered. First, yeah, rookie here's, mistake. Here's a... Here's a Here's a quick thing I've learned, I think, through Dave, is that if you just say them yeah. and you say them with confidence, nobody else knows how to pronounce them either, yeah. so it sounds right. Nobody will okay. doubt you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bethuel, uh, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore, excuse me, yeah, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. All right. Thank you, Sean. And then uh, if somebody has Malachi, let me set that up real quick. Um, so Malachi, uh, a prophet, part of the, the prophets uh, section of scripture, the book is kind of set up as a series of, of disputes um, where God will say something. Uh, Israel will disagree or question what God has to say. And then God will then respond and offer the last word. So that's, there's, uh, I think there's six times throughout the book of Malachi where you see this pattern of, of God makes a statement. His people who are kind of wrestling with hard-heartedness and rebellion say they disagree with what God has to say, and then God responds. Um, so the first dispute we'll see, um, this kind of conversation back and forth, is in Malachi 1. 
Will somebody actually take one all the way through verse five? So Malachi one, verse one through five. Somebody there? Yes, let's see, right. okay. The pronounce is the pronouncement of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Was Esau not Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and given his inheritance to the jackals of the wilderness. So Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. This is what the Lord of armies says They may build, but I will tear down, and the people will call them the territory of wickedness, and the people with whom the Lord. is indignant forever and your eyes will see this and you will say the Lord be exalted beyond the border of Israel all right thanks Matt so if you were to just kind of break it down and look at this this conversation between God and his people through the prophet Malachi the first statement in Malachi 1 is is God saying that he still loves his his people despite their failures and their response is well how how have you shown us your love? They're feeling abandoned and deserted by God. And God's response, he uses the, the Jacob and Esau story. And he says, uh, I graciously chose Jacob's family to carry my co- covenant promises, not Esau and his family. So God, this is where we hear the phrase, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. Um, and God uses this as, as part of the argument to show how he has chosen and been faithful to the people of God, even in their rebellion and unfaithfulness. He shows how all the way back to Jacob and Esau, his love, his kindness, his grace, his choosing has been on them. Um, Even though at times it feels like the descendants of Esau, that the Edomites are more powerful than they are. They're they're wrestling, well, God, what's going on here? So anyway, just keep those two things kind of in the background as we work through these verses, all right? Um, So here's where Paul's going as you kind of contrast verses 6 through 9 and now 10 through 13 is, um, oh, where where to go here? Okay, yeah. So... He's kind of building his argument a little bit here. And in 6 through 9, even though Isaac is the younger son with Abraham and Sarah, it's easy for us to understand. I think it's easy from a human comprehension level to understand why God would choose Isaac, the child of promise, over the older, illegitimate child, Ishmael. Like We were like, okay, I get that. I see why he would choose to... to um, choose and then work through Isaac and not Ishmael. But now it gets difficult for us because now he pulls up the next generation of Jacob and Esau and we're like, I don't understand why he would choose one twin over the other, especially the younger twin. Same father, same mother. They were both in the womb, hadn't done anything right or wrong. Um, Yet, why would God choose the younger over the older? Neither of them have have had an opportunity um, to show uh, anything good or bad to God outside the womb. They're still in the womb, and yet God has made his choice. And so that's that's where uh, Paul is leading us, is, hey, I, I get the Isaac and Ishmael thing, but Jacob and Esau, why would he choose Jacob? over Esau. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave that there and, and just say, let's, let's talk about that. What are your guys' thoughts? What are you hearing as you hear the Genesis five layout, the Malachi one, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. Where do we go from there as, as students of the word? I can't remember I read this, but you know, it's, it's in, in the same sense that God used Pharaoh to Mm-hmm. build up his his power to display his power yeah i mean he uses if i'm not mistaken the ishmaelites and and the edomites they're all basically the arab nations right that surrounds israel to this day mm-hmm. i mean there is conflict and continue obviously continued conflict but you know is that all not the same correlation to how 
he God used Pharaoh in that case to, you know, bring about his glory. <clears throat> you know, Esau and then Ishmael in those ways. Yeah, he's you actually know, sword, sword defined as a question, I guess, yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's actually going to use the the Pharaoh example you just brought up, Matt. So I think it is all connected. Um, you know, the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, Pharaoh, God kind of showing. Um, he will get to it here uh, probably next week. He he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, um, and he will raise some up just to show his power and his glory through them. We see that example very clearly through Pharaoh. Which is easier for us to comprehend and say, okay, I can get that. Pharaoh was like evil, wicked, selfish, greedy. He was oppressive and enslaved God's people. So sure, God, I'm okay with you using Pharaoh to you know, <laughs> demonstrate your glory, your power. I think we have a harder time with like, well, Esau wasn't even born yet. Ishmael, it's not his problem that like, um, you know, Abraham and Sarah jumped the gun. Like this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem just. Um, Sean, I know, uh, you, you, you've talked before about even just the translation of the words, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated, uh, help us maybe just even understand that phrase in, in context before we get too far. Um, are, are you asking just for clarity on, on Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated or? Uh, on the on the translation or the concept itself? Uh, maybe first the translation, and then if you want to get into the concept, go for it. But yeah, yeah I think um, I think when you when you see Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? The, the translation really lends itself. If, let me back up. If you look at the the Greek, it lays out the word hated as detested, but mm-hmm. it also lays out the word detest less love. So in the context of this, we see that um, really what God is saying, or really what scripture is saying is, Jacob, I have had favor upon, Esau, I have not. Mm-hmm. And when, when, you, when you scroll back to that, zoom out, look at the big picture, we see that um, essentially both children were born into sin, right? We know that everybody's born into sin. And God's saying that even in the womb, the, the, these these lives are sinful, but yet I'm going to find favor on Jacob and change his heart, because we know that God is the changer of hearts. It's not it's not Jacob because he was better or for any other reason. It simply is a demonstration of election that we see. God changes Jacob's heart, but allows doesn't force, but allows Esau to continue down his natural path of sin. And so he's showing favor to Jacob, but he's not showing favor to Esau. So I want, I want to make sure that we're clear that when it says hated, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that he looked upon him and couldn't stand him. What it means is he chose not to show favor upon Esau and allow him down his natural path of sin. Whereas Jacob, he showed favor upon just like he does us with, with salvation. And I think he's going to go yeah. through that. Uh, as we move through the rest of nine, we're going to see a clear picture of that. Yeah, and, and a math point. Yeah. Um, it's it's exactly it's exactly what he's he's doing with with Pharaoh. He's using Pharaoh. He's not forcing Pharaoh's hand, but he's allowing Pharaoh to go about his natural un unaltered pathway of sin in order to bring about his own purpose. Mm-hmm. That's so well said, Sean. I think that's really well laid out. What I like about what you said too is I, I think our our natural inclination would be to think, oh, well, God would choose Jacob rather than Esau because he knew that, you know, as Jacob grew up, he would serve the Lord, but Esau wouldn't. But the reality is, if you follow the story of Jacob, is he's just as much of a wreck as Esau is. He's deceitful. Maybe more. <laughs> it's true. He's conniving. For sure. yeah. He's deceitful. He's always manipulating people. So Jacob, um, it's not that, oh, well, Jacob was the better choice. Um, it's God demonstrating that even as deceitful as Jacob is and manipulative it is, God continues to be faithful and show him grace and mercy, um, which is just incredible. Um, yeah, go ahead. 
can we fast forward that that into today? Let's say that we being called to share the gospel with with everybody yeah. that we see. Let's say we run into an Isaac and an Esau. From the standpoint of election. So you're saying that if you know sharing the gospel with Esau, he would have never got it. Hmm. Isaac would have. You know, so here's my challenge, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're called to, to spread the gospel, you know, to the world. And yet you have this, the categorically, the, the target of election. Mm-hmm. You know, Sean, I was just, before you stepped away, I asked, um, you know, if we were to pull Isaac and Esau or uh, Jacob and Esau to today. And if we're looking at from the standpoint of election, and we're, we be, be being tasked with sharing the gospel. So if we would have ministered or, or shared the gospel with Esau today, he would have, he would have not, he would have not taken it. He would not have received it. You know what I mean? Like he, I know it's at that point, it's God's choice to plant, to wire that seed, to bring it about. But in this case, would Esau not have received? I mean, because of, he was not favored by God as opposed to Jacob, who was, who would have received it? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. I think um, not to push that forward, but I think we're going to start really working through that. And I truly think we're going to land a couple of weeks talking through that exact thing. Um, a couple of things to, to maybe bring to mind. Um, so we're tasked with, tasked with sharing the gospel we don't know who's going to receive it and who who will. Mm-hmm. Or, excuse me, who will receive it and who won't. <clears throat> and so our job, and I, and Paul's going to lay this out. We're just we're just to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. And when you look at like for instance the the parable of the wheat and the tares, what do they say? Should we go pull up the tares because you know they're going to destroy the wheat? And 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 the author says no, don't do that. Let let the let the let God do that. Let the Spirit do that. And the reason is because we're such a bad judge of even our own character mm-hmm. that we're going to pull out tears that we think are, we're going to pull out um, wheat thinking they're tears because we know we can't discern people's hearts. But only God can do that. And so I say that um, to answer your question quickly. Yes. Uh, but I think I think as, as we move through this, Paul's going to lay it out pretty clearly that. Our job isn't to worry about who's wheat and who's tares. Our job is to preach the gospel. And we need to do that because God's going to change hearts through us doing that. Hmm. I have a question. Can we compare this story to the story of Cain and Abel? Hmm. I mean, God loved both of them until it was time to make a sacrifice, to offer a sacrifice to God. And they both went into different directions. Mm-hmm. Can we compare this to, how, so how would you, let me ask you this, how would you compare it? Well, you know, obviously Abel killed his brother, you know, and yet through, you know, through his seed, God continued, you know, with his forgiveness and his loving nature that everyone after, I mean, um, from Abel's seed, he was still able to have the the nation of Israel continue on and and choose certain people who he he uh, chose as being righteous. Okay. And through there, continue the lineage of Jesus Christ all the way to the New Testament, from Old Testament chosen people to you know New Testament believers. Okay. Can we attribute yeah. Jacob being loved and and being the chosen one to Abel being the chosen one uh, and, and bringing on the lineage? Yeah, I think I think so. But here's the catch in that story that we're missing. When you look at the story in its context, you see that God goes to Cain and says, "What's going on with you? You need to back up." So, um, a matter of fact, he tells him, "You need to back up. Start." where you left off, start where you, where you fell and move forward from there. So 
to answer your question, yes, I think we can. I think it definitely shows a, a, a spirit of election with, with Abel, but also with, with Cain, God went to him and gave him the opportunity to repent as well, and, and he didn't. Mm-hmm. That's good. It's funny you bring that up, and I actually wrote down, you know, we're going to get there more so, but, you know, whether you want to call it the upside down kingdom or it's been called the great reversal, I think one thing Paul's leading us towards is how um, God oftentimes will kind of use the the weak to shame the strong or the, the younger over the older. And so I, I jotted down just a few. You could go throughout Scripture and just find tons of examples. But a few I jotted down was the first, you know, one of the first we see is that the younger brother Abel um, over Cain. Uh, you think of uh, Gideon's army of 300 conquering 135,000 Midianites. You think of uh, the little shepherd boy, David, being chosen to be the next king over his seven older, much stronger brothers. You think of Jesus coming on the scene and choosing unschooled, ordinary fishermen over the scholarly Pharisees to be his disciples. You think of the cross. Jesus calls the cross his throne. Um, You think of the tragedy of death, and yet Jesus sees it as triumph, right? Um, he sees his death as victory. And so this seems to be like Paul's kind of beginning to show us, hey, this is God's MO, is he chooses, um, you know, we would go towards the strongest, the oldest, the smartest, the all this, and God flips all that upside down. Um, and through our weakness, uh, his power is strong. And so there's... There's a connection there with with God's choosing and election of um, he he uses the the unexpected, doesn't he? And so maybe let me just try and wrap this up just for the sake of time. If you guys are feeling uneasy, uh, <laughs> it's a good place to be because where we'll pick up next uh, week. Look at verse fourteen. Paul, Paul says this: What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So at this point, 13 verses in, Paul's expecting that you're asking the question, that's not fair, or why would God do that? He's expecting you to be feeling uneasy right now as he continues to build his argument. So let me just try and maybe sum up where we've been this morning. It's okay for us to still feel uneasy, but to keep going back to the Word to kind of expand our view of of God in his unsearchable ways. Uh, So Paul's been building... Uh, this argument that God's choosing is not based on human effort or significance. Uh, This is hard for us. It's really hard for me because we have such a works-based mentality. We earn through effort. We get what we deserve. God should choose the one who does the most or has the most to offer, right? And so this is the gospel is, is from a human perspective, human economy is your worth comes from what you have to bring to the table. Um, in God's economy of grace, your worth comes from the one who's loved you, named you, formed you. Um, and this is the, the, the wrestle we'll always feel when it comes to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Is Our worth doesn't come from what we have to bring to the table. It comes from the fact that God, purely by his grace, would show us favor and love us and name us and choose us. Um, And so, just to recap, in verse 8, God's choosing is not based on the family you're born into. Verse 11, God's choosing is not based on good works or morals. And verse 12, God's choosing is not based on birth order, um, which, you know, in that time, you know, the firstborn would typically get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the secondborn would get a third, and the other kids, who knows what they got. But it was all about being the firstborn. And so through example after example, you see God choosing typically not the firstborn, but the secondborn or a few kids down the line. Um, so Paul's building towards this idea, God doesn't choose based on any of the things we would choose. His choosing is based on his choice. <laughs> and that's where we're like, okay, you know, um, good luck, you know. But 
That's where Paul leaves us at verse 13, and then 14, he'll, he'll say, okay, is, is that unjust for God to choose? Not based off of these things, but based off of his choice, and we'll keep working through that. So, guys, any thoughts, questions, um, comments before we go, and then we'll pick up in verse 14 and keep keep uh, muddling through this. My head is spinning as it explode. <laughs> Can I make it spin a little bit more? Oh no! <laughs> yeah, go for I, it. I'm I'm curious, Dave. Um, if you guys are okay with it, I would really like to back up next week and maybe talk about verse eight a little bit in relation to what you laid out. Yeah. With, with um, Abraham. Uh, and 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 Hagar and and Rebecca, etc. Um, if could could somebody grab that? And it reads: This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. I think Dave did a really good job of explaining what he means in, in that context. But I'm I'm curious to know how that would relate to us today. Mm. Mm. Yeah. If if somebody would be willing to, or all of you maybe be willing to, to grab that and and just maybe let's look at it again. If you're okay with it. Give, okay, it to, give it to John and Connie since they're I'm not here. I'm gonna volunteer Ron. <laughs> yes, I volunteer Ron as well. All right, Ron. Ron volunteers it to yeah. volunteer. I think I'll, I'll go ahead and do it too, just to redeem myself from the previous <laughs> turning in homework. Yeah, you are the man. Thank you. Yeah, it, Ron. I think I think when you say your head is spinning, I totally get that, man. But I, I think um, if you start putting this in perspective in relation to salvation, in relation to today. I think it's going to really bring some light into to and think about what Dave was saying about the older and the younger and the the yeah. So just yeah. yeah. Well, being the middle child, I feel it. Okay. Yeah, that's right, Sean. I think that's a great call. As as you just said that, yeah. There's yeah, that's a really good call. So we'll how about we we lead off with that next week, and then uh, we'll we'll jump from there kind of sum up and then move verse 14 forward. Cool. All right. Awesome. Hey, have a good morning, everybody. Take care. All right. Bye. See you guys.